My prayer is that we would become captivated by the significance of Christmas. Honestly, that you and your family this season would become captivated by the significance of Christmas, not just the story of it. See, I think this is what the Apostle John does as he opens up his gospel account of Jesus' life. We talked about this last week. He sums up the Christmas story really in one sentence. This is what he says in John chapter 1, verse 5. He says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is how John opens his gospel. Much different than how Matthew and Mark open their gospels, giving us a detailed account of the birth narrative. John writes the birth narrative this way. He says, look, look, you can go read the details somewhere else. Here's what you need to know. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So what John is saying here, in other words, is he is saying after all the facts have been considered, here's the conclusion. Here is the final judgment, right? Light has come into darkness. After we've carefully surveyed all the facts, the verdict is this, it's, it's not negotiable. Light has come into the world. Okay, so some of you may remember from a few years ago in Thailand, uh, on June 23rd, 2018, a youth soccer team made up of 12 boys from the ages 11 to 16, they went with their coach uh, to explore a network of caves uh, after practice. Uh, the intention was for this to be a fun sort of after practice exploration for team bonding purposes, but if you know the story, you know that unfortunately for them and their families, uh, their fun quickly turned to a nightmare. Uh, their fun quickly turned to panic and to fear um, as the monsoon rains hit while they are a half a mile underground and two and a half miles from the entrance to the cave. Uh, in fact, if you look at this, this graphic here on the screen, it shows you where uh, the boys were, uh, uh, were, were trapped, where they were located where the entrance to the cave was. It shows how the floodwaters uh, came. So uh, the floodwaters came. It, it, uh, it completely uh, floods out their escape route and uh, leaves these boys trapped deep, deep, deep inside this cave, two and a half miles from the, the entrance. Um, what's interesting is, you know, the original intention was for this to just be a, you know, a quick, fun adventure. It was going to be an hour or two and so they didn't bring with them any extra food or any extra water. All they had was a rope, a flashlight, and some extra batteries. And now they find themselves trapped deep inside this cave, and there is no possible way uh, to, to escape. Um, in fact, these boys become so desperate, as, as you or I would in a situation like this, that they, they actually would lick the, the condensed water off of the walls of the cave just to try to preserve their life and to just give themselves some more time. Um, days went by, and they are literally starving. They are running out of oxygen. Now, if you know the story, you know, because uh, this captivated the world, you know that um, it, it took experienced divers from the Thai Navy SEALs as well as other uh, very experienced divers from uh, around the world who all kind of converged upon that place in Thailand to offer their assistance. They all came together to hatch a rescue plan. Uh, and it took nine days for them to locate these boys. It took another eight days for them to get all of them successfully out of the cave. So for 17 days, these boys are trapped in this incredibly dark cave. They are lost in this network of caves. I mean, it's unlike anything probably uh, any of us, I would imagine, have, have much of a frame of reference for. It's a vast uh, series of caves, uh, and they are lost in there. This was uh, an unbelievable situation. Uh, it, it, it created so much uh, tension in, in Thailand. It, it created uh, so much panic. In fact, the initial search mission to find the boys after they went missing on June 23rd was almost called off altogether um, because the flooded cave was just too dangerous to navigate. I mean, it was dangerous enough to navigate uh, when... Uh, there was no floodwaters, uh, way more dangerous to navigate a cave trying to swim through it, you know? And so uh, they almost called it off. In fact, one of the experienced divers, a man by the name of Ben Reminence, he, he uh, showed up. He was a diver from Belgium, 
owned his own uh, diving business and, and showed up to help. This is what he had to say um, at the beginning of this search and rescue operation. He says, when I arrived, the entrance looked like the Colorado River, uh, but with mud and zero visibility. So it was really pulling hand over hand. There was this really strong outflow, and at the beginning, we were advancing about maybe 100 meters a day in zero visibility, fighting the current. And then there are parts where you have to climb up, dragging all your tanks. I turned around from one unsuccessful dive, and I took out my line and came back, and I met the British who were on their way in, and then we decided we have to call it off because it's not going to happen. People will die, and we don't even know if these kids are alive. So this is the beginning of the rescue effort. And, uh, you know, we sort of have the, the privilege of being able to know kind of the end, uh, you know, at this point, how it all turned out. But, but where they were, they had, they had no idea. They're at the very beginning of trying to rescue these boys, and they're going, these ex- very experienced expert divers are saying, there's just no way. Like, this is an impossible mission. There's no way to do this. And so they began to kind of get the word out that they were going to call off this, this mission. And th- thankfully, though, they, they chose not to. A lot of that had to do with the Thai Navy SEALs, these, these young 20-somethings who just could not fathom having to face their countrymen knowing that these boys had died on their watch, and so they refused to give up. They continued to go in uh, to, to, this, to this cave, unsuccessful mission after unsuccessful mission. And so these other experienced divers from around the world kind of saw these Thai Navy SEALs refusing to give up, and they just thought, well, if they're going to they're gonna keep going, I guess, I guess maybe we should stay. We'll lend support as long as they are you know, willing, willing to, uh, to, to, to keep searching. Eventually, uh, they, they find the boys. Nine days in, they find these boys, and everyone is, is amazed, and yet now they have to figure out how to actually get them out. And so in what has been called an extremely dangerous rescue mission, uh, where they, they put the boys on a stretcher, uh, put a dive mask over their face to sedate them and put them to sleep during the transport part of this, this, uh, this rescue um, in fact, in fact, it looked like this. There was, there was a, a lead diver uh, and, a, and a rear diver. The, the lead diver had to uh, carry their own oxygen mask and the, or, or own oxygen tank and the oxygen tank of the boy on the stretcher. And then the rear diver had to, you know, help navigate the, the stretcher through, you know, the twists and the turns and, and shine a light and help, help navigate uh, through it. Eventually, all the boys and their coach are successfully rescued Amazingly, this search and rescue effort, it took five hours to get one person out of the cave. Five hours. Unbelievable story. And, and, and it, you know, it's pretty, pretty recent in our memory. You know, it wasn't all that, that long ago. This search and rescue effort, uh, it became an international operation. I mean, hundreds of, of uh, cave and rescue experts and military personnel all converged and descended upon this place in Thailand. And as you and I know, you know, this, this was... Worldwide news. It captivated the attention of the world for over two weeks. It's an unbelievable situation. I tell you that story because you know what I love about this story, and what captivates my attention about this story is that the rescuers, they don't just stand at the entrance of the cave and shout in as as, as loud as they can or with a megaphone to just sort of tell these boys, "Hey, you should find some some oxygen." They don't, they don't just stand at the entrance of the cave and tell these boys to go, hey, try to find some, some food somewhere. Just look around, do what you can. They don't stand at the entrance of the cave and tell these boys to try to find an alternate route of escape. They don't stand at the entrance of the cave and, and, and shout as loud as they can, hey, you know, we're praying for you. Sure hope you make it out. What I love about this story, what like moves my heart, is that these rescuers I mean, they, they swim into the darkness of this cave and they risk their own lives. It's, it's just a, a powerful picture. It's a powerful reality for these boys, powerful picture for us. And this is a rescue story that, that in my opinion, it, it just reminds me a lot of another rescue story that we read about in Matthew chapter 18, where we see this metaphor of this good shepherd that represents Jesus and this lost sheep that represents you and me. And in Matthew chapter 18, this is what Jesus says. He says, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that has wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should 
be lost. I mean, this is, this is the gospel right here. This is, this is Jesus coming on a rescue mission for you and for me. I read this story, and I've read it a, a lot, and you know, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this story, uh, this parable of the good shepherd, but I think about it this way, like, like what if the shepherd didn't leave the 99? You know? Like, what if, what if similar to like the, the, the rescue divers, what if he had just stood on the edge of the cave and just, just shouted, you know, for the sheep? What, what if the good shepherd had played the percentages and was just good with 99? You know, you win some, you lose some. What, what, what if he was just good with that outcome? But, but we all know in the Gospels that this is not what happens. That the good shepherd does not relent until the lost sheep is found. And there have been books written about this parable. There have been songs written about this parable. In fact, one of the most famous songs in the last few years that has been written about this parable is a song that, that we've even sang here at times called Reckless Love. And in the, in, the, in the bridge portion of this song, the lyrics are pretty incredible. It says this. It says, there's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down coming after me. I mean, think about these, these lyrics. These, these are lyrics about, about the good shepherd coming after the lost sheep, about Jesus coming after you and me. And it says, there's no shadow you won't light up. In other words, there's no place where it's too dark that you won't go. There's no mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down coming after me. And this is similar to what we see in the rescue of this Thai soccer team three years ago. In Thailand. Now, to be clear in this story of the Thai soccer team, I got to let you know that the spiritual application is not that you and I are the heroes. No. The spiritual application of this story is that you and I are the ones trapped in the cave. In this story that I'm, that I'm trying to, to just kind of give some spiritual kind of application to, you and I are not the rescue divers. Like, we are the ones trapped in the cave. And I think in the same way, all of humanity has wandered so far into darkness that it has required a heroic effort to save us. How many of you are grateful that Jesus came on that dark night 2,000 years ago to light up some caves? How many of y'all are grateful that Jesus came on that night, that dark, dark night 2,000 years ago to light up the darkness? And so this story that I just opened with, you know, the story of this, this, this Thai soccer team, it might be confusing to you at first because, you know, we're at Christmas, right? And we got, I'm surrounded by Christmas decor and, you know, we haven't even talked about the manger yet or anything like that. But, but in my opinion, this story of the Thai soccer team, it closely aligns with the story of Christmas. It closely aligns with what we read about in the Gospels about what Jesus did 2,000 years ago because it is a story that shows the great lengths that which people would go through to, to rescue those who were trapped in the darkness of a cave. And you see, you see Christmas, at its most basic explanation and understanding, is the story of God's plan to rescue humankind from the darkness of evil and sin. And while the Christmas story can be cute, no doubt, I mean, there's a baby after all, right? And while the nativity scene has been romanticized, to a degree over the years, do not allow yourself to miss the intensity of this story. The Bible is abundantly clear that sin and darkness is the reason for why Jesus came. That he came to rescue us from darkness. And the Apostle John tells us in one of his epistles that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. There, it, 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 there are cute elements to this story, no doubt. Especially if you've been in church for any long and you've seen like the kids come do their, you know, their musical or their play or whatever and there's cuteness all over the story, but do not allow yourself to miss the intensity of the Christmas story from 2,000 years ago that Jesus, the Son of God, came. He came to, to light up the darkness and to destroy the works of the devil. Look at this scripture, Colossians, the Apostle Paul writes this, Colossians 1, 13 through 14. It says, for he, God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He has rescued us from the dominion 
of darkness. This is why Jesus came. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is what it means to put your faith, your hope, your trust into Jesus as your Savior, your Lord, is you are understanding that you were once dead. You were once in darkness. Jesus has come to rescue you from that life and to bring you into a new place, to life uh, in him. The Gospel of Matthew explains really why Jesus came as well. The angel appears to Joseph in a dream in Matthew chapter 1 and reveals this to Joseph, and he says this. He says, she, Mary, will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will, what's the word right there? He will save his people from their sins. You have to, whatever you do this Christmas, whatever, whatever you lean into in the Christmas story, you know, we do this thing every year in our family on Christmas morning, we read the Christmas story before any presents are opened, right? We, I just, I just, I just want to make sure, like, we're, we're, we're all about, like, the most important part of Christmas as a family. And so we read the Christmas story, and then we go around, and everybody kind of just shares, you know, what's your favorite part, or what stood out to you the most? And whatever stands out to you the most this Christmas season, like, that's great. Embrace it. But, but do, not, do not forget, like, the significance of the story and that Jesus ultimately came to save us from sin. This is why Jesus came. He came to save. He came to rescue his people from their sins. But just to give you some context to a statement like this from the angel to Joseph is that the people, the people didn't want to necessarily be saved from sin. Like at the time in the, in, in the first century when Jesus was born, like the people he's coming to, they don't necessarily want to be saved from sin. That's not like what's on their mind. That's not the forefront. That's not the pressing issue. They want to be saved from the, 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 the oppression and the control of Rome. Like there was great, great darkness at the time of Jesus' birth. And, and we've, done, we've done, I think, a decent job over the years to help kind of, kind of frame that and show that and explain that there was great darkness at the time of Jesus' birth. The Jewish people were doing their best to hang on to any last hope of the prophecies of the Messiah actually happening. The Jewish people had been given prophecies of this, this Messiah who would one day, someday come, and he would deliver them. Prophecies from, from like Isaiah and other Old Testament prophets from hundreds of years before, and now in the time of Jesus' birth, these people are tired, they're worn out, they've been oppressed by the Romans which have gone down in history as, as one of the most ruthless empires ever on the face of the earth. They were under their control. And these people were tired, they were weary, they were worn out. And they're hanging on to every last hope that they can, that one day, someday, this Messiah is actually going to come. Many people had actually already given up. Many people had been like, you know what, that, that, was, that was such a long time ago. Clearly it's not going to happen. And many people, many of the first century Jews at this time began to treat the story of the coming Messiah more as like a fairy tale. Especially after all the hundreds of years that have passed between the time of the prophecy spoken and Jesus actually being born. Pretty safe to say that their belief in the Messiah was waning at this time. Any belief that still existed in the Messiah was, that, was in this sort of warrior king. In fact, interestingly enough, when Jesus comes, he's given this name, Jesus, which, which comes from the Old Testament, the name Joshua, Yeshua in Hebrew, which means warrior king. And so he's given the very name that they expect, and yet Jesus comes on an entirely different mission. He's a warrior for sure, but not to fight against Rome and to overthrow Rome. Jesus has come, like I've already stated, to destroy the works of the devil, to do battle in the, in, in, in the heavenlies, to do battle against the dominion of darkness. Hmm. So these words from the angel to Joseph here, Classic words that we've heard year over year over year at Christmas time. These are not the words he would have expected to hear from the angel. This is not the image of the Messiah that people had built in their imaginations. They would have thought, you know, we definitely need to be saved from some, from some things. But sin isn't even on their list. It's not even what they're thinking. 
They weren't looking for someone to save them from their, from their sins because they didn't, they didn't even think that that, that, was, that that was necessary, that they needed to be saved from their sins. Like they already had a system in place to deal with sin. They already had a temple. They already had a sacrificial system to deal with sin. It wasn't on their mind that they needed salvation from sin. What Joseph and the people of Israel wanted most was to be saved from the Romans. They wanted to be saved from Rome. And obviously that's not the kind of Messiah that Jesus was. See, I read this encounter of the angel and and Joseph and I think about the context of the history of what was going on there and I, I just wonder if what was true of them is still true of us. At times where we can at times struggle to see the need for, for salvation from sin in our own lives. I wonder if that doesn't like, like, like pop up in our life too. Like I think we get it, like I think we understand that, that, that this rescue plan, you know, was, was somewhat necessary, but, but, I, but, I, but I, I wonder if, if there's not some of us in here who, who think, you know, did it need to be so elaborate? Did it need to be so dramatic? Like why go through all of this, you know? I think what was true of them is, that, is possibly true of us, that we too don't always connect the dots of how significant our sin really was and why Jesus needed to come like he did and, and, and how dark things really were for us. I wonder if we struggle like them to see that we are, we, we are trapped in a cave and we cannot get ourselves out. We need to be rescued. If you're taking notes this morning, the whole purpose of Christmas was God initiating his rescue plan for humanity. It was God Saving his people, it wasn't God saving his people from Rome, it was God saving his people from themselves. See, at Christmas we remember that Jesus came to us 2,000 years ago. But the hope and the prayer that I have had this Christmas season like for our church, as I've prepared for this season, as we've leaned into this series, into what Christmas is going to be looking like here at our church, I, I have... I've prayed that we don't just focus on the story of Christmas, but that, but that we focus on the significance of Christmas. Now, the story's great. Like, I, I got nothing wrong with the story, but, but the story without the significance really hitting us doesn't really matter. It doesn't really change anything. It doesn't really, like, like, like alter anything in our lives at all. All it becomes is, is rote, mechanical tradition, and I want, I, I want none of that, right? I, I, I want to I hang on to the significance of Christmas. Angels and shepherds, they are great. Mary and Joseph are great. I love the wise men. I, lo- I love me some donkeys, you know, like I'm all about that. I don't know if I should have said that. I, <laughs> my, listen, but my prayer, my prayer, my prayer is that we would become captivated by the significance of Christmas. Honestly, that you and your family this season would become captivated by the significance of Christmas, not just the story of it. See, I think this is what the Apostle John does as he opens up his gospel account of Jesus' life. We talked about this last week. He sums up the Christmas story really in one sentence. This is what he says in John chapter 1, verse 5. He says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is how John opens his gospel. Much different than how Matthew and Mark open their Gospels, giving us a detailed account of the birth narrative. John writes the birth narrative this way. He says, look, look, you can go read the details somewhere else. Here's what you need to know. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In the profound words, or I should say, like, said another way, in the profound words of the prophet Ariana Grande, giving some exegetical commentary, I think, on this, on this verse right here. This is what she says. Uh, she says, the light is coming to give back everything the darkness stole. This is one of her songs. The light is coming to give back everything the darkness stole. I never knew this was one of her songs. In fact, I, I'm tempted to even just sort of sing it to you because it's kind of catchy. Um, but, uh, man, I, I've, been like, I've been like actually like singing this like, like this week. I've been like, man, the light is, I'm just kidding. Uh, but it's good. Like the light is coming to give back everything the darkness stole. This is, this is essentially what John is saying as he opens up his gospel. Jesus even explains the significance of his birth and the significance of Christmas in John chapter 12 when Jesus says these words. He says, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay 
in darkness. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. And right here, Jesus just frames the condition of the world in in which he came. This is the condition that the world was in when Jesus came, and he's letting us all know that in the midst of all this darkness, he came to bring hope. He came as a light. I wanted to take a lot of time this morning to sort of set up this story. I wanted to take a lot of time to set up and show the links at which God went to save your life and to save my life, and then to ask you this question as we kind of pivot here for a second. The question is this, how am I to live in response to this great rescue? How am I to live in response to this great rescue? I wonder how you would act if you were rescued like that Thai soccer team was. I wonder how appreciative you would be. I wonder how you would live now having a new lease on life. How many of you would never go near a cave ever again? Right? But what if this, what if this happened? What if once the Thai soccer team was freed, they went right back into the cave? Like what, what, if, that, what if that had happened? After everything like the, 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 the Navy SEALs went through, everything the, 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 the expert divers went through to get them out, you know, the, the, this dramatic rescue plan, like, like what if after being rescued, they just went right back into the cave? How ridiculous does that sound? Like, like what, you know, what, what if they said something like, hey, you know, we appreciate all the effort you went through. You know, one of the rescue divers actually lost their life. They said, you know, hey, we appreciate all the effort you went through, but we actually like it better in the cave. What if they would have said something like that? The thing is, this is the way God's people have acted for thousands of years. Drawn away towards their flesh. Drawn away towards the darkness. John chapter 3, verse 19 The Apostle John writes this and he says, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. This is the verdict. Now, that's a word we know. That's a word that we hear often in the legal system of our world. We, we, we hear this word in court cases. It's the finding or decision of a jury on the matter submitted to it in trial. And so what John is saying here, in other words, is he is saying after all the facts have been considered, Here's the conclusion. Here is the final judgment, right? Light has come into darkness. After we've carefully surveyed all the facts, the verdict is this. It's it's not negotiable. Light has come into the world. He goes on here and he says, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Now here's the deal. There is darkness all around us. Right, that's clear. There's darkness all around us. Every time we're on social media, every time we turn on the news, every time we do any of these things, we see the hatred and the division, we see the violence, we see the pandemic, the wars, the evil, the political problems, the racism, the gun violence, the list just goes on and on and on and on. It is not very hard for us to to look, we don't have to look very far to see the darkness, that it is all around us. And what I've been wondering this week specifically on this message is I've been wondering if it's possible that our own familiarity with darkness has allowed for us to become comfortable with it. I wonder if our own familiarity with darkness has allowed us at times to become comfortable with it. Familiarity can cause us to become desensitized to darkness. It's just like in, in the last, last couple of weeks, you know, this, this story in Michigan of this, this young boy, 
you know, uh, shooting up his school. And, and I, remember, I remember in 1999, I was, uh, I think I was a sophomore in high school, and I remember when the Columbine shooting took place. I remember it being like the, the first thing, or, you know, I think there was maybe one in Springfield, Oregon, just before that, but this was like the big one that hit the news like crazy. And I remember it like, it shocked me, it stunned me, as anybody else who was kind of alive at the time, it was like, it was unthinkable, and it captivated our attention, it captivated the news, and, 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 then, and then, you know, this, this story a couple weeks ago, and, and most people have moved on by now, because, because our familiarity with darkness, over time, it ends up making us comfortable with it. Not that, we, not that we're okay with it, not that we think, like, that's, that's acceptable now, we're just used to it. We, we, we've, been, we've been desensitized to darkness on certain levels that it causes us to have some level of comfortability with it. What was once unthinkable has now become so common. And so our familiarity with darkness has caused us to react much more mildly to it now than maybe in years past. Familiarity will often lead to comfortability. Let me say it this way. What is familiar often is what becomes normal. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to look at this thought with me. The challenge is not in recognizing the darkness that exists out there. The challenge is in recognizing the darkness that exists in me. Because it doesn't take much effort to spot the darkness. It doesn't take much effort to just turn on news or hop on Twitter or social media, whatever it is, and to see it and how pervasive it is in, in our world. The challenge is for us to recognize the darkness that, that, that lives in us, this darkness that lives in, in, in me. How many of y'all know that darkness doesn't just exist somewhere out there, some, you know, somewhere, other parts of the world, in other families or other places, but that darkness is so much closer and that it touches all of us. It lives in all of us. And what has troubled me at times just over the years as a, as a pastor is just watching how lightly we can handle our own darkness. I think of all that Jesus did to deal with darkness. Everything I've just explained to you leading up till now in the service, the image you have in your mind now, everything that Jesus went through to deal with darkness, and then I see our own friendliness with it. And it's concerning. It's concerning. We excuse darkness in our lives under the guise of Christian liberty. I'm allowed to do this. I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. You know, I'm not going to be legal. Don't, don't, don't make, you know, make it legalistic for me. I don't want to be legalistic. And we, we can kind of uh, just give permission to things in our lives that, that probably shouldn't be there. That like Jesus, if he had the choice, probably wouldn't want that in our lives. And we give ourselves the permission and the freedom to do things under the guise of Christian liberty, we become friendly with darkness. The result is that not only become friendly, we become comfortable with it. Tim Keller says this. He says, uh, I saw him post this on Twitter this week. He says, uh, Jesus warns people far more often about greed than about sex, yet almost no one thinks they are guilty of greed. Because it's, it's very difficult to see our own darkness. It's very difficult. Like, it's easy to spot it in other people. How good are you at spotting the darkness in someone else, right? Like, how, I mean, you guys probably have, like, master's degrees in that, right? Like, like it's so easy to see the darkness in someone else's life. It's much more difficult to spot it in our, in, in, in our, in our self, like our own selfishness, our own greed, our own battles with, you know, with, with, with all kinds of darkness. And what I've, I guess I've witnessed over the years is far too many people attempting to live with the very thing that has the power to kill them. I, I, maybe a year or two ago, I, I, in a message, I, I talked about, I had read this, 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 this long article about people who had tried to domesticate wild animals uh, and make them like, like home personal pets. I don't know if you remember that, but, and, and, I, and I don't, I'm not going to go into all of it, but like people were, were trying to domesticate like ridiculous things. I mean like, like tigers and lions, you know, they, they would like raise them in their home and think they could domesticate these animals, trying to, to domesticate the very thing that had the power to kill them. I mean, like, like black widows and like actually the black widow killed somebody. Like, I mean, it's it just absolutely insane. You know, I told you the story of a, of a couple who decided they were going to have a pet python, but not have it in a cage, let it sleep in their bed. 
you got you to be, be outside of your mind, you know? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't even know, I don't know what is wrong with you, but I'm, I, I'm like Indiana Jones when it comes to snakes, you know? Like, I just cannot. Everything satanic and, and evil, right, in, in, that, in that creature. So um, that's what I think, Th- them and cats. But, uh, <laughs> okay. All right, all right, all right. Pretty much the same thing, so. But these people, these people had, these people had this, this pet python. They let it sleep at the end of their bed. And it just, just coiled up there, like, you know, like we're getting friendly with snakes now. And, and uh, all of a sudden, this, this pet python baby, they called it, began to act differently. And instead of laying coiled up at the foot of their bed, it began to lay stretched out in between them at night, and they didn't know what was wrong with it, and so they, they, they went and called, uh, you know, the vet to find out what was happening, and the vet, like, could hardly get the words out fast enough, said, you got to get out of your house, like, now, because it's not, it's, it's not sick, it's sizing you up because it wants to eat you. Like, I've, I've seen, like, 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 I've seen in my life similar examples of people trying to domesticate the very thing that has the power to kill them, becoming friendly with darkness comfortable with darkness. Let me just tell you something right now. You possess no ability to tame or domesticate the flesh. You have no ability in yourself to tame or domesticate the flesh. It is only because of Jesus and the power he can give you to overcome that that you have any chance whatsoever. Um, So there's another type of darkness I want to get into here. There's another type of darkness, and uh, it's the darkness of being blind. Because I think the issue, like I said already, is that it's not so hard to see and notice the darkness in other people or in other places. It's hard to see our own darkness. So I want to talk about the darkness of being blind, like when you literally can't see. It's one thing to be surrounded by darkness, but it's another thing to be surrounded by light and be unable to see the light. Unaware that you're blind. Blind spots. Areas we cannot see. The Bible tells us that our spiritual condition apart from God is that we are actually blind. We're spiritually blind. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 61, he prophesies about the coming Messiah, Jesus. He says, he says these things. He says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. This is, this is the, the, the Messiah speaking, Isaiah prophesying. This is the, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. This right here, release from darkness, it really is speaking to, to spiritual blindness. Those who are blind. Release from darkness those who are blind. Luke chapter 4, Jesus stands up at the beginning of his ministry and he adopts this prophetic uh, scripture about the Messiah and he adopts it as his personal mission statement. And he says, this is, this is, who, this is who I am, this is what I have come to do, to release from darkness those who are blind. Famously, John Newton wrote this. He said, I once was lost but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see, was blind, but now I see that famous song, Amazing Grace. Paul writes this in Ephesians 5, he says, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, live as children of light. You were once darkness, you're not darkness anymore. Quit living like you're still in darkness, and live as children of the light. The only reason why Paul has to write this is because of people not living in the light. The only reason why this has to exist in our scriptures is because people who are now in light are still living in darkness. You were once darkness, but now you are light. This morning, I want to give us an invitation. I want to give us an invitation to open ourselves up to the light of God and to do that You must be willing to do this if you're taking notes. Confess the darkness within. 
You have to be willing to confess the darkness within. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13 says this. It says, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper. The one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. What does it mean to open our lives to the light of God? What do you think it means to join our lives to the light of Jesus? What does it mean to live in light and not live in darkness? being people who confess and renounce the darkness within so that we can find mercy. See, I think that above all other people on the planet, Christians should be the ones who are most aware of our own inner darkness. In fact, depending on your church background, especially if you come from a more mainline church background, you will have some sort of experience with praying prayers of confession. Things we don't talk about as often there's anyone who should be most equipped to recognize darkness within themselves, it's, it's, it's the Christians. Like our entire, our entire faith, the culture of our faith is built on the tradition of throwing ourselves at the mercy of God. We've done this for centuries as a church because Christians have always believed that sin is very real and that sin is very pervasive. And so all throughout the history of the church, the people of God have, have come before the Lord and have thrown themselves at the mercy of God. Asking for God to shine his light on the areas of darkness that exist in them. If you're taking notes here this morning, if there's anyone who should be confessing the darkness within, it's Christians. And yet what we find within the church is that it's often hard for us to name our own darkness. Hard for us to name it. Because we struggle to see darkness as actual darkness. Again, we're familiar with it. Comfortable with it. It's just who I am. It's just the way things are. This is just the way I, I was raised. This is just the way I talk. This is how, these are the things that come out of my mouth. It's just, I, I don't know. It's just who I am. Don't, don't, don't put me under judgment. Don't, don't, you know, I don't live under the law. I'm under grace. You know I mean? It's, we justify and give permission because we just say, you know, that's just the way, the way I am. But listen, you and I are on a journey of becoming more and more like Jesus, which means that who we were two years ago is different than who we are today. And who we are two years from now is going to be different, spiritually speaking, than who we are right now. We're on a journey through our life of becoming more and more and more like Jesus. So this is why you and I, like we have to actually hate darkness. And even though we struggle with darkness, we're to hate it and to not be friendly with it and to grieve over the times where it, 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 it flares up in our lives and it gets the better of us. To grieve over that. To ask God to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. And to make us new. In my opinion, one of the reasons why the church in this nation, so the church as a whole, is losing so many people is because we've not routinely confessed our own darkness as a church. Listen, the darkness is not just out there. The darkness is in here as well. And again, if you're taking notes, the more we acknowledge and confess our darkness, the more the light can come in. The more the light can come in. The more the world can see the church as a viable solution to the transformation of this world. The more the light can shine through us and we can start like Jesus, lighting up some caves, lighting up some places of darkness in this world. Because we, we refuse to associate with darkness, we refuse to, to make peace with it or to form a treaty with darkness, a truce with darkness. We refuse. Get, let me just tell you something. If, there, if there's an area that's existed in your life where you're just like, I don't know, this has always been there, it's always existed. I wanna just encourage you today to like get your fight back and to rip up whatever, whatever contract has existed of, of, of peace or truth you've made with darkness 
And even in your struggle, hate it. Hate it. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian novelist, says this. He says, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through, and through all human hearts. See, we live in a world where it's very easy to blame the darkness of this world on everyone else. We live at a time where it is very easy to blame the darkness on other people. It's the liberals. It's the Republicans, right? It's the person who doesn't return their cart to the cart corral, you know, at, 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 you know, at the store. That's why the world's in so much darkness, right? I don't know if it's happened to you. I've gotten convicted of that more than once by the, by the Spirit of God. And, and so I've been, it's been nice over the last couple of years, the times where we've had to wear masks, because, you know, I, you know I, I, I can just, nobody knows, nobody knows. That's Pastor Jordan that didn't put his cart back. <laughs> all, all kidding aside, but it's created an ability to conceal created an ability to conceal. Listen, I just, I just really came here today that, to just tell you that like, we should be the ones who lead the way in confessing the darkness. That yeah, yeah, there's darkness out there. And we could all sit here and talk about it and we probably all know all about it and we could, we could name it. We could say the darkness in our world looks like this, it looks like this, it looks like this and there are things that just get us so wound up but in my opinion, Christians should be the one who lead the way in confessing the darkness. Imagine how much our marriages would be healed if we would confess the darkness that lives within us. If we would sit down, husband and wife, and we would just begin to confess the things. Like, look, I, I'm, I don't know where that came from. I'm not right. Like, I need, I need the grace of God in my life and Imagine what would happen if we would confess the lies and the judgmental things that exist within us. Imagine what would happen in the lives of people if they would begin to just confess the darkness of lust and pornography that has been pervasive in their life. Imagine the freedom and the healing that would take place if there was confession regarding anger. Like it's not just who you are. Listen, if you're an angry person or there's, you, just, you just lash out, that's not who you are. That's, that's not who you are. That's not who God designed you to be. That's not who he has freed you to become. Imagine if we would confess before the Lord, you know, our, like our, our struggle to, to just sort of indulge life and all the luxuries that life can create. To just sort of, sort of just kind of be very, very self-focused and self-centered. Imagine if we actually saw that as darkness, that that's not the plan of God over your life or for mine, that we are to be people who don't seek ourselves first, but we seek the kingdom of God first and all these other things, not, not riches, not glory, but all these other things, like the, like the real needs of life will be, will be added to you as you seek first the kingdom of God. Would you, would you just stand with me this morning as we close out here? I want to just take a moment as you close your eyes and bow your head. I just wonder what the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart today as you just close your, your eyes and bow your head for a moment. I wonder what the Holy Spirit might be speaking to you today. Because the invitation this morning is to let the light of Jesus break into your life. To let the light of Jesus break into your circumstances. To let the light of Jesus break into your character. To let the light of Jesus break into your fears. To let the light of Jesus break into your relationships that are broken and that are suffering. And so wherever you are in your life today, I just wonder what the Holy Spirit is trying to speak to you 
And if you're here today and you would just, you would just say that there is, there is, there is a, a place in your life that you can acknowledge where the light of Jesus wants to break in and you want to see that happen in your life today. Could I just, as every head's bowed, could I just see your hands in this room right now? There are areas in your life where the light of Jesus wants to break in. Right now. God, I ask for the, the floodlight of heaven in Jesus' name. The floodlight of heaven in Jesus' name. Every area of darkness to be lit up right now. Every ounce of shame and guilt and condemnation that has existed in the lives of these people for far too long. I ask for freedom in Jesus' name. Freedom in Jesus' name, God, that, that uh, any, any association with darkness or feel, familiarity with darkness, any, any comfortability with darkness that has existed, that it would end right now, that it would, that it would, that it would go away, that it would have no more claim, that it, the, the hooks that it's had in your people would uh, release themselves now in Jesus' name. I ask for freedom to come, oh God. Restore wherever there has been God, something taken and something stolen. God, I pray you would restore back to your people. I thank you that you are the light of the world. And this time of year, maybe more than, than others, it just seems like we need that light. We're more in tune with even our own darkness. And so God, I ask, I ask right now that you would just light up the caves. I thank you for this massive heroic rescue effort that you endured all those years ago, and I pray that it would cause us to live our lives differently in light of that rescue. To not associate with darkness any longer, but to live in the light that is life. Set every captive free in this room, God. Every captive in this room, under the sound of my voice, I decree and declare just wholeness and healing and transformation, God. Never the same. Never the same. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.